in the most recent episode of our True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks speaks to serial social entrepreneur Dave Erasmus. Dave shares how he has created businesses to have a positive impact on the world, but also what he has learned from his woodland and oceanic adventures along the way. Dave, many thanks for joining us today on True Connections podcast. It's a real treat for us to have you on. So thank you for joining us. What a joy, Alan. Thank you. And never a better titled podcast I've been asked to join. So I'm really pleased to be here. <laughs> thank you. You obviously got the script. So thank you, Dave. <laughs> Dave, we meet a number of business people, entrepreneurs, etc. And I think their stories are all unique and very different in their own ways. And we often talk about how they got to where they are today. And when we've been sort of looking at your story a little bit, Dave, it is so diverse. And I think of the various projects that you've been involved with, the really deep and rich experiences that you've undertaken, all of which have, I guess, a common thread. And and you've said it often, I guess, in the past, and that you really want to look back on life with a belief that your impact on the world has been a positive one. And it's great to see you being able to, I guess, entwine that with your business life as well. Before we even sort of get into the ventures and the businesses and so on that you've been involved with, whether that's as a philanthropist, as an environmentalist, as an adventurer, etc. But where does that sort of philosophy come from in terms of your legacy? Well, thanks, Alan. I guess there's a few triangulating forces in my life that have led me to sort of go on this wiggly path. It's funny, isn't it? Looking back on hindsight, it can all sound a bit grand, but in practice, you've got no idea what you're doing one chapter to the next. But I can see the themes that sort of the tailwind, if you like, that got me going. And I'd say on one hand, I grew up in a community, a faith-based community that I guess had strong values around community, inclusion, being there for one another, having that kind of connection that you're speaking about. And I think then the internet tools came around at the same time I was coming of age. I'm 36 now. So started my first business when I was 19, pre-social media, but Google had just arrived, eBay had just arrived. And I think that combined with the fact that I didn't suit the system perfectly, shall we say, within the school life. I was okay. I was getting on all right, but I wasn't going to win that game. I think all of those triangulating forces meant that it was a bit of a no-brainer to keep my antenna up and see what opportunities might allow me to take a different kind of path. And does that fill you with any fear, Dave? You spoke about a wiggly path that you go on with some degree of uncertainty. When considering whether to go on a slightly more risky entrepreneurial path or to take a more corporate job, let's say, I think it's all about the opportunity cost or the perceived opportunity cost. And I think if you're an Oxbridge graduate with a significant network of colleagues and friends, then the opportunity cost of trying something on your own might be more than it was for me. If you can't really see a good path for you through the middle lane of the system, then there's not really much to lose. You may as well give it a crack. I have a strange profile of capabilities where some things that people find easy, I find quite difficult. And some of the more creative bits around drawing lateral connections between things other people find hard and that comes quite easily to me so it's always been natural for me to work in teams because I'm not the full ticket on my own and it's always been natural for me to try and inculcate values into tools 
the tools of the day because that's where my kind of slightly chaotic and creative way of working is most embraced, shall we say. If it's all been figured out before, if there's already Excel spreadsheets that tell you how to organize the value, if there's people who are more organized than me that have done it, then I'm not very useful in those spaces. So I guess I've slowly just found a symbiotic relationship with the right kind of environment for me. But sometimes there is fear. It doesn't mean it's not always easy. Sometimes there are sleepless nights, but I don't know another way. <laughs> and thinking about things that might not have been done before and just thinking also about your sort of the early day ventures into the world of business. You established Broad Place Advertising, what, nearly 20 years ago, I guess, coming up to now, Dave. What was the genesis of that and how did that particular business come about? Yeah, I mean, that's horrifying that it was 20 years ago. I'm sorry, I may have overregged that, but it was probably at least 15 years ago, I'm suspecting. It might be true. I was 19 and I'm 36 now. So, I mean, what is that, 17 years ago? So, you're not far off, to be fair. Well, as I said, I just came up on that wave where the internet was coming of age. I was coming of age and I had a bunch of values that had been shared with me by my community. And well, I guess that was the next chapter with Givy, really. But that first chapter was trying to <laughs> really see if I could make a living without having an alarm clock. That was the first thing, because that was what was getting me in trouble at school. And so if I could be my own boss, I might not have to get in trouble every day for being late. And actually, later in life, I realized that James Dyson is a bit of a sleeper. And that gave me great courage because I always thought that entrepreneurs were these characters that slept four hours a night, kind of, you know, never stopped, always working, always grinding. When I found out that James Dyson sleeps 10 hours or 11 hours a night, I was quite encouraged. <laughs> I thought that sounds a bit more familiar. But yeah, I mean, really, you just stumble into it. And, you know, I got a job working for a guy down the road who was managing people's ads on Google. I soon realized that I wouldn't be a good sales guy for very long, couldn't keep hitting the phones 50, 60 calls a day, and suggested that I recruited a sales team. He let me do that. I recruited a sales team. I looked them in the eye. I gave them jobs, promised them they'd have three months to prove themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And then one day I came back to find that he had fired two of them, which led me to feel like I'd broken my promises to these guys. I went away. I had lunch with a friend and came back and said to him, look, I can't work like this. I want to work for you. I want to help you. But you can't do that. Basically, you can't fire the people I've hired. And he said, well, if you don't want to do it my way, then you had better go. So he basically marched me out the door. And then I was like, well, I better try and figure out how to do this thing myself then. So sat at home at my parents' house in my pants, calling people off a borrowed pixelated laptop and pressing 141 on my parents' home phone and started calling companies who had started advertising on Google and seeing if we could help them to do it more effectively. And we built that company. I hired all my friends. There was 20 of us in the office a couple of years later. We were doing it for 200 companies around the UK, millions of pounds of ad spend, and got lucky enough that the market was on the up and somebody coming out of a big gambling site actually wanted to consolidate the market. And they offered to buy the company from me. And I thought, no way, no chance. This is me and all my friends. But all six of my advisors at the time, including my dad, said, you've got no idea how good you've got it. You've got no idea this doesn't happen every day, especially not to a 21-year-old. And so I took their advice and took the money, paid off the mortgage, and that opened up the next chapter, really. 
amazing day. Do you look back on that with any regret? Do you think you could have taken it to a next level? We hear from a number of entrepreneurs, business owners who sometimes say, you know what, I wish I'd stayed in and taken it to a different level. Do you see it differently? Yes, it's a good question. I do have some regrets from within the process, but not about the big story. I've never looked back. I've been on a wild adventure ever since. And yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think the privilege to clear the debt, to be out of the mortgage, the mortgage, the death grip, as they have it in Latin, is transformational for a life. And we find it absolutely normal and aspirational to get in as much debt as possible and spend our lives paying it off, which I completely understand. I have a mortgage now, actually. Since coming back from the woods in the last couple of years, I have a mortgage again. But it definitely clips your wings and causes a different kind of focus. But that wild adventure, I'd never change. But to say one thing that I do regret, one of my young guys, when I went in to tell him that the company was going to be bought by that guy that came last week to audit the books, he said, but you told me to buck my ideas up. You told me to commit to the company for the next year. And I've done that. I've worked harder than ever. I've committed. And my heart sank and I had a teary moment because I realized probably for the first time this sort of implicit responsibility of leadership that although I had never committed to him explicitly, I'll be here for a year because I'm asking you to be here for a year. It goes with the territory. Of course, he expects the boss, the leader to do at least what he's asking commitment from other people. And I let him down and he was gracious enough to forgive me over the following weeks. But there was small mistakes because I was young and I didn't understand what it meant to lead properly. But no, never regret the big story of it. And Dave, you, you moved on to create Givey, which is a really interesting social donation platform, if you like, and just identifying the real problem that I guess still exists today. I mean, the issue of charities attracting donations and their ability to really magnify the causes that they are close to. How did that come about? Well, I guess working with Google for three or four years, I got used to what is pretty much the most elegant economic system of this generation. You know, the way they've put it together is why it's worth probably a trillion dollars to them by now, which is this beauty of the cost per click match with the quality score with just the low bid and they only charge you when the value is actually moved to you. You only pay for the clicks that come through to your website. And I think that really showed me if you get a system, an economic system at scale, it can be transformative in changing how people relate and how they do things in the world. And so I guess once I got free, I started to think, well, if that's what the power of the internet is, how could we use it to drive the kind of interactions that matter? And so I started to think about what is our giving culture? Is there room for our giving identity in these digital landscapes? We've got our LinkedIn work identity, Twitter, intellectual, Facebook, social. Where's our giving identity? How are we going to bring this story of civil connection into this millennial landscape? And I was very lucky. In fact, this last week in San Francisco, I got to catch up with John Lunn, who used to be the director of innovation at PayPal. And it was at his charity hack that I first learned about building technology at the PayPal charity hack. And that's where we conceived of Get Giving, which was an app that had allowed you to do one-click donations on your iPhone. 
which then got rejected by Apple when I got Nick Hurd, the Minister for Civil Society at the time, to go and knock on Apple's door and complain because they're more than just a company. They're setting culture for a generation. But what was striking to me was I had built and sold a company and nobody cared. And then all of a sudden, I just hacked an app together put a story out and managed to get a suit in London to go and meet with a company on our behalf. And all of a sudden, we're on front page news of the Third Sector magazine. And I thought, this is where I kind of got introduced to the wider system, if you like, of PR, of solving broader problems, not just building a business. And that's really where it came from. The next year, we went back to the drawing board and came up with Givy. And then from there, we went on a four or five year pretty mad journey through Buckingham Palace, meeting the Queen, David Cameron, speeches with the big society, if you'll remember that agenda, raising a couple of million dollars of investment and ending up in the Silicon Valley, all trying to make essentially this space outside of the standard economic model get on the agenda, be exciting for the next generation. Why do we still give? Why is it still part of our human psyche when the modern economic system has been so successful, too successful, you might argue? And that really also opened up my intellectual journey. Having not gone to university at the age of about 25, I started realising I'm enjoying talking to these professors at Stanford as much as I am in actually building the company, if you like. And what you're talking about there, Dave, is, I guess, the giving economy, right? So it's the everyday things that we do, you do, to transfer to a much more sustainable existence. How far are we on that journey, in your view? Where do you see us, maybe compared to the US, for example, where at least there's a sense it's much more embedded? Are we some way off? I guess there's two things in there. One is the human interactions and how we connect with and look at each other. The other is, well, you could say sustainability of spirit and sustainability of the environment. Um, I guess we'll come on to the other half of the equation, the more external side. But in terms of our giving culture, I mean, the US, if you've been there, you'll know if you just bought a beer in a pub, the way they handle money, the relationship between employers, employees and consumers is entirely different where you don't have the tax always written down. You have to pay for their wages at the end of your bill rather than just paying for it and maybe tipping if it was good. It's like... 20, 25%. It's a very different relationship altogether. You only have to look around on the streets in San Francisco at the heart of this movement we're talking about of web technology to see that they haven't got it all figured out. The level of homelessness is not just people dropping out of their house last week because they had a row with their partners. We're talking people who are deeply, deeply ill and have been out there for a very long time. So the thing with philanthropy is often the third sector has to fill in for where the governance has failed to protect and care and build a safety net. So without going into sort of governmental structures and the pros and cons of different Western societies, where I have focused is on the habit of giving, the personal journey of giving, and how do we inculcate a habit much like a fitness of trying to be healthy or you know not eat junk food or to get outdoors and walk how do we inculcate the daily habit that we know is good for us because as you said in the giving economics there is a whole different kind of value that's unleashed and it's viral in a way that transactional living isn't if you charge me for something and i pay you the fair rate for it 
that's the end of it. We might build trust together. We might have agreement and that's no bad thing. But there's an entirely different virality that unlocks in culture when you give, when you share what you have with somebody else. It creates a knock-on effect that transcends transactional values, which is incredibly powerful. And even on a management level, Adam Grant has a great book from Harvard called Give and Take. And he talks about the fact that most people in the workforce are matchers. They will just mirror the behavior you give to them. If you're good to them, they'll be good to you. If you're bad to them, they'll be bad to you. But you get the odd giver and you get the odd taker and that takers and givers can infiltrate the whole rest of the workforce. So as a leader, you have to be very careful to make sure, especially that you protect your givers from takers because takers will pull givers dry. And so you have to make sure that you manage and handle any takers you find in your workforce. So this kind of way of thinking about people can be transactional when thinking about money and money flows in the charitable sector, but it's also about energy flows. And do we add to the people around us or do we take away from them? And it's sort of pervasive all through society, really. And you need to capture that contagion of the right behaviours, I guess, and have the balance between the two. Is that fair to say? Exactly. Yeah, making sure you're careful to look like a hawk for those that are extracting energy from your rooms and make sure you drop in at least one or two people that are willing to lead and go first in giving because they'll get everybody else on the same team. So, Dave, we've spoken a little bit about those sort of early day ventures and your experiences as a business person and importantly as a leader too. One of the super interesting experiences, I'm guessing, that you've had is your time away from day-to-day life and this notion of the existence of nature and digital. And of course, referring to your time away in the woods where you spent a fair amount of time, I think it was just about a year or so. Is that right, Dave, in the woods in Sussex? Well, it depends if we're talking practically or metaphorically, but yes, in the physical, it was a year. Metaphorically, I've been off piste for five years. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, I guess it leads into the what we're doing now with our carbon, but starts in the end of the Gibby journey, really, which is that with Gibby, we raised, as I said, a bunch of venture capital from IP Group and other companies down in bank, went to the Silicon Valley, had a deal on the table with Salesforce to try and really scale this, what ended up becoming an instant matching employee giving scheme that allowed businesses to donate in the moment with their employees. And in the end, my VCs didn't back the journey I was on anymore. They wanted me to come back to the UK. They didn't want me to sell to Salesforce because they would have only got a 4x return instead of the 20x that they were desiring because all 19 of the other companies they had backed were already dead. And as you can imagine, this was pretty traumatic or disappointing, at least for me. And I didn't realize it at the time. I thought I was just making a choice to, okay, fine. Well, if you don't want me, I'll leave. We'll let our chairman look after it. And he's been faithfully running it for the last five years. You know, it hasn't scaled to change the way the world thinks about giving, but it does something like £100,000 a month for small charities all around the UK. And it carries on. Meanwhile, the VCs are long gone from the business. But I ended up, as I said, going off piste at that point, went on an adventure with a friend to try and listen to young people around the world, and then ended up on a soul-searching trip to the Costa Rican Corcovado rainforest, 
where three different friends had told me that that might be a good place to go and do some soul searching. And Corcovado Rainforest is the most biologically diverse place on the planet. And if you've ever been there or if you ever get the privilege to go, you know it because you can smell it, you can hear it, you can see it. The colours are off the charts and the level of different species that you see and encounter there just even in one day is like nothing I've ever seen before. And I left there thinking, I want to take what I've learned from the valley and what I've seen and felt as almost like a Mecca, almost like an example of heaven or the Garden of Eden. How can I take that and bring that back to a slightly more real world scenario? How can I be within an hour or so of my parents? I don't want to settle down somewhere where I can't be near them when they get old and start to need support. And so, yeah, I ended up doing a deal with an aristocrat in Sussex, not quite the Costa Rican rainforest, but got 25 acres of woodland to sit in. And I bought a shepherd's hut on eBay. And I basically let go of my life as I knew it. I stopped doing for the first time in my life and started to encounter something that you mentioned at the beginning around fear and essentially the unknown, not knowing what I was doing because I wasn't doing anything or what lies beneath doing more specifically. And this was where I feel like I faced an element of fear and death in letting go of that which society had supported and celebrated me in doing. And especially by that point, my public speaking, by sitting doing nothing, I let go of my need or ability to use words to craft narrative, which is essentially what had allowed people to allocate capital to me. And so my whole identity and framing in society sort of fell apart. And that was very difficult in that first winter. But a new life began to slowly grow for me. I started making YouTube videos, had a community growing from around the world of people connecting in and sort of creating it with me, sending me letters to the local pub because I didn't have an address there. So they'd send a letter or a hand-knitted socks to the local pub, which I'd go and pick up when I would go past there for a pint. And this whole new way of being opened up for me. And it was the best year of my life in the end. And Dave, it wasn't as if I guess you were isolated entirely from any connection to the outside world, but you seem to find a way to mix the sort of natural world with a digital age, right, for the benefit and to allow you to think. Is, is that how you saw it? Well, I had a little solar panel and it allowed me to charge a phone. And on that phone, I would record these video clips of thinkings and what I was building and bits of nature I had seen. And yes, I began to post them and people began to connect with those. So what it did was flipped my sense of community upside down. Instead of the here and now being extremely demanding of birthday parties and Zoom calls and everything you need to do every day, I had nothing to manage. And the only people that were talking to me or connecting with me were people from around the world. So I had this much enhanced sense of this global community of people that were saying in the comments, Dave, you better get a carbon monoxide detector because you might choke yourself out. And so, you know, that somebody from India was giving me the knowledge I needed to sort of make sure I didn't hurt myself in the woods. And so it really flipped my sense of community on its head and again showed me the power of the internet to connect people all around the world. But one of the most crucial things I think from that year in the woods was I was protected from the capitalist system for the first time in my life. I wasn't able to build anything, store any value for myself. I was sitting on somebody else's land. 
I put a few grand into a shepherd's hut to build it from scratch and it really wasn't worth much. And what that opened up for me was the kind of an aesthetic inquiry. It allowed me to look more closely at nature to see its beauty for the first time. And that opened up along with the slowness of not building and growing, but actually just sitting and being, that allowed a whole other world really to open up for me. And my sense of identity moved to sort of a deeper place from just as a businessman or even as a Christian as I grew up, I had let go of both sides of my identity and I found a much deeper, quieter, more simple sense of rootedness, if you like, if you can forgive the pun, of just finding my identity within nature and what nature is best, well, the most diverse, the most beautifully looking, smelling, tasting nature. And that's what I want everybody to experience really both to know themselves personally in that space but then also to be in an environment that has those qualities within it and dave are you going to go back to that life anytime soon well it's funny because in four weeks time i go to one of my best friend's weddings in costa rica he's bought land and he's going to be building a tree house in the jungle with 200 other people and they are living that utopic life And I'm glad he's doing that. And that suits him. He looks like Tarzan. He should live in the jungle. But for me, it's not about that. In the woods, this beauty that I found, this connection, led me to justice, which is the other side of fairness. And if you think about justice, we know that it has a connection with fairness because we say we want the justice system to be fair. But actually, fairness comes out of the aesthetics. We used to talk about the fairest of the fair. It came out of the aesthetics originally. And that's the nature of beauty I found is that it to really enjoy it past a point, you have to feel connected to the other side of that equation, to the sense of, hang on, if I'm experiencing this, but not everybody can, there's a limit to how much I can continue to enjoy it without also trying to participate in unlocking this value for more people. And so I find myself on the edge of London in Surbiton, the commuter belt, more often than I'm finding myself in the woodland setup, although I do go between them. But the reason I'm here is because I want to do things like this with you right now. I want to talk to the system. I want to find ways to restitch our economy to our ecology and to bring about greater flourishing in our environments so that we can all live richer lives. And you can't do that sitting in the woods. You can get the inspiration for it and get the personal experience and I can make the connection for myself, but I can only deliver it if I'm willing to come between the two worlds and have these conversations, which I'm so thankful for. And Dave, just touching on the investment side there, I mean, that whole experience that you've described clearly very, very personal to you and it enables you to capture your thoughts and I guess come out the other side to implement those into society. When you're speaking to investors, for example, what's their reaction to the story? (laughs) Well, I think it's evolved because I worked with companies that I wouldn't work with now. I was trying to build a social impact business before there was the terminology or the market. There wasn't B Corps, there wasn't triple bottom line, wasn't popular. And they didn't really buy into my vision. They thought it was just an opportunity to follow the old model in a different market. So now, as I'm restitching myself back to the modern world, I am being very careful about who I 
work with and who I talk with. And even within the angels that I'm speaking to, I am finding personally a range of, it's so fascinating the way that different angels perceive their opportunity. Some of the best quality angels I have see it as an absolute privilege to be on the journey, walking with us as we build our carbon. And some of the newer ones, shall we say, I think they've been watching too much Dragon's Den. I think they think that because they've got 40 grand to spend with a bit of SEIS in the background, that they are God's gift to startups. And it's fascinating to see everything in between. But what I look for is angels that want to go on a journey. They want to learn something in the process. They're willing to bring some rigor and hopefully some intelligence and some connections to the table because capital is only in part finance. It's definitely social and intellectual as well but mainly to come on a journey together. Because at the end of the day, whatever businesses you build, sell, fail, it's a set of relationships and it's those relationships that follow you. And I'm lucky now to be able to build something on the strength of the journeys and relationships we've built before the woods, during the woods, and now on this journey. Most of the people I'm working with are people I've met in the past and it's only just a few that I'm adding in now to the new story. And you touched on our carbon there, Dave. Just tell us a little bit more about our carbon and what you've been up to there. Well, essentially, there's two ways of getting at our carbon. One is to think about it from the current agenda up. We're talking about COP26. We're talking about net zero. And that's where we're meeting UK businesses. They're typing into Google, get me net zero, do my carbon accounting. And we are doing that. We're coaching UK businesses to figure out for the first time, most of them, what on earth their relationship to carbon and to nature is, to get a grip on it, and then to start to make a plan to both reduce it and also to offset that which they can't yet get rid of so that they are on the right path with their carbon journey. But if you can imagine coming in from the other side, I'm wanting to transform our landscape so that we are all living in the most abundant environment possible so that we all get the opportunity to live essentially in the rainforest like Tarzan. I want us all to live in that richest environment because that is human flourishing in that environment. And so in the end, we're trying to take UK businesses on this journey towards valuing nature that goes beyond just thinking about static carbon budgets but that actually thinks about that carbon which they're purchasing, how does that relate to the complex ecosystem in which it's nested? Is it adding that additionality to the natural environment? A little bit like we talked about in the giving culture, you've got your givers, you've got your matches, you've got your takers. Is the carbon project that you're investing in adding to the environment? Is it increasing our biodiversity? Is it adding additionality to the chemical compounds in the quality of the soil, the air quality, the water table. And so that's the quality journey that we're trying to meet UK companies where they're at with their net zero Google inquiry and take them through to a place where they can see that it's about the world we're building and just investing in carbon. Firstly, if you're not careful, you get wound up in a lot of greenwashing even if you get outside of that, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily building a better world just because we might one day balance our carbon budgets. We've got to take that next step. And that's the journey we're on now. So we're only working now 
to help offset companies with nature credits that account for both carbon and additionality so that everybody we work with knows that we are building, moving slowly towards building an ever more flourishing planet. Yeah. And David, it feels to me it's very much a tripartite arrangement with governments, with corporations and businesses, but also with consumers in terms of changing consumer behavior. How much more can we be doing there? It feels like that's key to a lot of the net zero plans that are present in the UK and, of course, more widely. Where do you sit on that? Well, it's a great question because in that question lies a set of beliefs about how change happens. You know, do you wait for this demand to get created and then try and meet it? Or are there ways that you can create new stories and new narratives and new demand in society? Coming back from San Francisco, I heard about Buckminster Fuller for the first time last week and was looking at some quotes of his online, a great innovator in the US. And he has this lovely quote, which is, you can't change people's thinking, but you can put different tools in their hands, which will lead to different thinking. And I must say, I'm not sure if the former is true, but it's certainly easier to do the latter. And so my view is that we need to imagine the future. We need to imagine the landscape and the tools to put in people's hands that allows them to move forwards in the direction that you want them to. I think that the government are often struggling. Even today, I can see the government struggling when they're trying to do this matching scheme between the refugees in Ukraine and homes in the UK. I think they're trying to help, but they genuinely don't know how to do the technology. They genuinely struggle to build the system and make the plan. And it's down to technologists to build the tool to make that easy, to make that connection happen. And I feel that way with this regenerative economy. You know, if we want to make sure that the earth is a place worth visiting in 2080. If Elon Musk is successful with his grand plans to get to Mars and people are living there thinking, should we bother visiting earth on the weekend? We need to all club together to make sure that it is cheaper for businesses to have a regenerative relationship than an extractive relationship with nature. But how do we get there? Well, we need to model it first. And so what I spend my time doing on this fraying edge between the business world and the woods, if you like, is finding individuals, business owners, capital allocators, angel investors and team that want to be the first ones to set the new standards that we actually stop talking about ideas in the future and just go about building it. I'm a market maker. We have new customers every week in our carbon. And so now we wait for the customers that come through the door that we can see have real passion. And we start introducing them to what we think are the boldest, most regenerative products and start building out that market one customer at a time, one ton of regenerative carbon at a time. And that is how I go about doing it anyway. I guess from that model, we can start building up the support system, including getting the government to start putting the right incentives in place to get rid of the incentives that help the extractive companies like Shell stay at the top of the FTSE and hopefully start moving the whole landscape towards one that supports a regenerative culture so that in 10 years time, we might have a regenerative company at the top of the FTSE instead of an extractive one. But it starts with building the model. Yeah. Dave, I want to touch on one of your other great experiences, I guess, which wasn't in the woods. It was actually on the water on your journey into COP26 in Glasgow last autumn. 
And it was something that, I guess, struck me in terms of, I guess, the ignorance to the ocean relative to the role it can play in terms of our future and our sustainable planet. Just tell us a little bit about your journey to COP26 and I guess what you are looking to achieve there and what you're going to take into COP27 going forward. (laughs) Yeah, it was one of the most challenging and interesting adventures and experiences of my life. We spent a month on the water on a 38-foot catamaran, having never really sailed before. Six of us, two vets, two filmmakers, and two adventurers, if you include me as one of those, with my friend Andy. And we set off from Padstow in Cornwall and sailed up the Irish Sea through all four parts of the British Isles, through the Hebrides, and down the Clyde of Firth to the COP26 Convention Centre. But all the way up, we were doing what's called a transect, taking lots of recordings, one after another in a line, in order to do some science with Steve Simpson, a marine biologist from Exeter University. And we were dropping little microphones into the water 10, 20 metres below for 10 minutes or sometimes overnight in order to get acoustic readings of the Irish Sea. And we were doing that primarily to see the effect of global warming on the rising temperatures of the sea and that effect on species migration, namely snapping shrimp. And I don't know if you've heard of snapping shrimp, Alan, have you? It's not something that I've looked for on the menu. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you'll find them on the menu anywhere, but if you look on Google, you will see these are one of the most powerful creatures in nature. They're just a couple of inches big, but they have a big claw. And when they snap that big claw shut, it creates a sonic boom, 3,000 Fahrenheit, creates a vacuum that collapses on itself, and that sends out a shotgun, basically, a boom that stuns its prey. And so it's also called the pistol shrimp. And this is one of the most powerful explosive things that happens in nature. And this is what blew my mind when I was on this trip because it was nothing more than an amateur adventure with friends to make sure that we thoughtfully went to COP instead of just arriving mindlessly in an Uber. But what I learned was that, wow, this can be heard up to eight miles away. Sound travels better underwater than through air. And it's the primary sense that we use to know what's going on under the water. And the more I learned about the ocean, the more I realized how it's neglected by the nation states. We fight so fiercely for land, yet there's very little governance and protection in the ocean. It captures half of all of our carbon. It's home for most of our habitat on this planet, two thirds of the surface of the earth. Yet it's scary. We don't spend much time out there. It is the great unknown, the great abyss. And What I realized was, and this is quite embarrassing to say for someone who's been working in carbon and valuing nature for the last two or three years, but unless we find ways to measure trustworthily and to value the carbon and biodiversity stores under the water, we're screwed. It doesn't matter how much we do on land. If we let our natural assets decline under the water, then this is game, set and match. And so... That whole adventure, uh, which I could talk for days about, but to save you the long fisherman's tales, just to say that we managed to get to COP and we managed to share the stories of what we had heard listening to the ocean 
under the sea. That has inspired me to build out an R&D department in our company to figure out how to create essentially oceanic radios that can give us 24-7 live streams to tell us about carbon stores and biodiversity stores under the water so that we can invest in it, so that we can protect our future. If we don't do that, then it will be game, set and match no matter how good we do rewilding projects or agroforestry projects on land. So it was it was a primary connection for me and one I was embarrassingly quite ignorant of before I jumped on that boat. And I got to say, it does show to me at least the value of just adventure, getting out there in any way, whatever suits and following that amour, that amateur love to go and voyage out into a new environment, whatever that means for you, because I did not think I would be finding a new R&D department for my business by chucking up relentlessly on the Irish Sea for a month. (laughs) Sounds like you prefer your time in the woods to your time on the seas. (laughs) Well, it was certainly very different and it was far less room for aesthetic, beautiful appreciation. But I learned some more dad skills, I can tell you that. (laughs) And Dave, it's, I guess, a worrying irony that you mention the impact the ocean has and water has on our planet, but it doesn't seem to be greatly represented at any of the previous cops what do you want to see from next year's cop 27 in that respect yeah so i guess going to cop 26 there was two sides to the coin one was out of the 14 days of agenda thematic days the ocean was not one of them which is beyond belief on the other hand i was invited into two different circles one a innovator circle from san francisco and secondly a kind of a b corp group within the uk both highly energized, well-resourced, and well-mobilized and passionate, authentically passionate about the oceans. And so I was kind of left there thinking, on one hand, oh no, (laughs) what are we doing? We haven't got it on the agenda. On the other hand, actually, it's not far away. We've got a lot of really well-resourced and well-mobilized people working on this, innovating, and there's no doubt about it that next year at COP27, it will be a decent part of the agenda not least of all, because we'll make sure that it is. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope so. Dave, just to finish on, I guess, firstly, I know a number of our listeners will be fascinated to have heard from you today. So very grateful to you for sharing some of your experiences and indeed some of your philosophies. But when you think about your life in business and those wanting to, I guess, emulate some of your thinking around what we said at the start, really, which was making sure you have a positive impact on the world when all is said and done and letting your thoughts take you on a journey, however wiggly that journey might be. What would you say to some of those people who have those thoughts? Well, the only way I know how to get up every day and keep building a gentle momentum on something that may or may not prove to be successful, that's being built from essentially imagination or from an artistic place, is to get to a quiet place in myself and only work on ideas that have come from that place, that have come from a sense of authentic personal inquiry. Because otherwise, if I can't make it connect to my heart, and I don't think it's of all the things that I could be doing, the one thing I have to do, then what's to stop me getting more excited by another opportunity tomorrow? And how do I keep my head down and feel comfort knowing that I'm just 
probably doing a good thing, even when it doesn't seem to be going my way. And so, yeah, that's what I tend to do with friends is just help them in a quiet place to just dig deeper, to find that still quiet voice that's deep down in their psyche that says, this is what I want. And if you can find that quiet voice that says, I want this in the world, then I think you're on to a winner. Dave, on that, just to say thank you again for joining us. One of a real enjoyable conversation of great inspiration and indeed innovation. Thank you for sharing all of that with us and very much look forward to hopefully hearing from you again in due course and seeing you also on your journey. Dave, many thanks. Alan, thanks so much. I just want to say that I think conversations like this are exactly where the good work is done in keeping the world connected between the city and country, the on and off grid. So I can't thank you enough for letting me jump on your podcast. Pleasure and great to have you. That's all for this edition of Julius Bear's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening and please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at juliusbear.com. Bear.com.